Let's go ahead and make our way to Matthew chapter 13. And today we'll be looking at verse 33 as we continue our series entitled The Kingdom of Heaven. And another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. The parables are often most some of the most difficult passages to properly interpret. As one professor that I uh, had, that he stated that, you know, individuals who are expositors or teachers shouldn't even look to teach the parables until they've studied the Bible for 30 years. And of course, he was making a point by saying it in that manner. Parables can be often very tricky. And this one, this one verse, gives us some interpretive challenges. It all has to do with what was Jesus' intent by using the word leaven. Now, we are looking at the subject of the kingdom of heaven. We are looking at Jesus' statements concerning the inauguration, the beginning of the kingdom of God here on this earth. And of course, he was doing this to expel the misconceptions that the Jewish people had gathered and gained uh, through the uh, faulty teaching of the religious leaders of that time, believing that when Messiah came, he was going to once again physically sit on the throne as king of Israel, elevating Israel back to a, a status of uh, their zenith existence under King David. But also in conjunction with that, he was also going to bring the other nations into subjection to them. Now, all of this was due to the fact that they misinterpreted Old Testament passages. We have historical writings that show us abundantly that the religious leaders in the day of Jesus really misunderstood the various Old Testament passages concerning the coming of the Messiah. There are those who, who wrote that they believed two messiahs were going to come. One was going to be in the likeness of a suffering servant. The other one was going to be in the likeness of a reigning king. Not understanding that Jesus was going to come the first time as a suffering servant to die uh, for the sins of the world. And then in his second coming, he was then going to establish himself as a reigning king. But by the time Jesus walked the earth, the religious leaders had now combined the two in believing uh, the uh, elements of the Old Testament prophecies that best suited them for the moment. For example, they were under Roman oppression. We know that. They had just experienced the oppression of the Greek Empire before that. They were having great difficulties in their nation, and they had lost their sovereignty for a great portion of time. And so to encourage the people, but also to establish the leadership of the religious leaders at that time, they told the people what, frankly, that they wanted to hear rather than what they needed to hear. And so they painted a picture for the people of the coming Messiah, that he was going to free them from their Roman oppression and the Roman bondage that they were currently under. He was going to elevate the nation of Israel once again in the world as they anticipated. And then on top of that, he was going to bring the nations into subjection of his um, regal reign there in Jerusalem. 
And this, once you understand this piece of historical information, the conversations recorded for us in the Gospels make so much more sense. Even the fact that right prior to the ascension of Jesus Christ, the disciples were still asking the question, are you going to establish your kingdom now? So Jesus gave various parables to help uh, uh, correct that misunderstanding that they had and also establish a right expectation concerning the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven at hand at the time of Jesus and how it was going to develop over the coming years, centuries, and millennia. So in chapter 13, Matthew, writing to Jewish people, wrote and consolidated all of the parables of the kingdom in what is called the discord of discourse, excuse me, of the kingdoms, of the kingdom. And so here we have now another parable. Speaking these parables for the fact that he's hiding the revelation of the truth from those who were spiritually blind and allowing those who had eyes to see and ears to hear, to hear and to understand, including and specifically the disciples. They needed to know what they could expect next. So he likens the kingdom of heaven to leaven. And this brought, brings significant interpretive difficulties to us this morning. The reason is, is that we need to understand what Jesus intended by using the word leaven. And many commentators and many uh, individuals, pastors and scholars, they believe that the only connotation for the understanding of leaven is in a negative effect, in a negative way. And therefore, they try to assign a negative understanding of the word here, and then therefore trying to make it fit within its, in the context of the way Matthew was preceding it, and then they get into arguments about the authenticity or the origination of this uh, particular saying of Jesus from a document called Q. No, we're not talking about QAnon. We're talking about a document called Q. That they, scholars believe, Matthew and Luke both drew from in their writings of the gospel. This is supported, now we're getting into some heavier stuff, this is supported by an idea of what's called Mark and Priority. Believing that the Gospel of Mark was written first, and Matthew and Luke drew from Mark and this source Q. It just means we don't know what that source is. And because of the similarities found in the Gospels, they believe that it has to go back to a single source of you know, authenticity. Again, there are some assumptions made in that. But we know, ultimately, right, that the Word of God is the inspired Word of God. And that Jesus stated that the kingdom of God is like leaven. So what did he mean by that? Well, the first thing you do is you take a look through the Bible, and it would be easy to conclude that leaven always represents something negative, either sin or evil or corruption. Uh, for example, passages like Exodus twelve fifteen, When Moses wrote, he said, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So it's easy to see from there that it represents sin. And of course, Paul draws from that. We'll see that in just a moment. That it's evil. It's associated with sin and corruption. 
And of course, the unleavened bread in the Passover meal undoubtedly refers to the Christ himself. It makes sense that leaven would have to be removed at that time. But then in Matthew's gospel, Jesus uses leaven in a negative fashion himself. When he says, in Matthew 16, 5 through 6, now when the disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Again, referring to some type of sin, evil or corruption. And of course, Paul brought this into the Gentile world when he wrote to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, your glory is not good. Your glorying, excuse me, is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. That's our goal as Christians, to be a lump. Since you truly are unleavened, For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So in all of these cases, there are negative connotations associated and and, uh, assigned to the word leaven. And it makes sense that you would try to interpret this word based upon that understanding. However, though, in the book of Leviticus, leaven is used in a positive way. In fact, it's included in two sacrifices uh, and offerings unto the Lord. For in Leviticus 7.13, Moses writes, Besides the cakes, as his offering, he shall offer leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offering. Or in Leviticus 23.15-18, we read, And you shall count for yourself from the days after the Sabbath, from the day that you are brought, uh, you brought the sheaves and of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count fifty days, and the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from uh, your dwelling two waves of loaves of two tenths of an ephod. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven, and they are the first fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer the bread, uh, seven lambs of the first year, without blemish, one young bull, two rams. Are are you glad that we're not under the old covenant anymore? You know, can you imagine? Yes, excuse me, I need two lambs for sacrifice. We'd have pita and green peas all over us. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with with the grain offering and their drink offering, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Both in a positive sense, leaven is used. So what does Jesus mean by this? Well, the actual key to its interpretation is the four-letter word like. The Greek word there means that the kingdom of heaven is similar to leaven. So if we were to take it in a negative connotation, then we would have to say that the kingdom of heaven is like sin, evil, and corruption. Well, that's inconsistent with the various parables that he gives here in Matthew chapter 13, which all see the kingdom of heaven from a positive perspective. So after looking at that, we see the sower of the seed, which Matthew begins with. That the one who has the good soil of the heart is fruitful many times beyond himself. 
When it comes to the wheat and the tares, though the tares are the focal point of the conversation, in the Greek language, the celebration is in verse 43 when it says that the righteous shall shine forever. It's positive. When we looked at the mustard seed, it showed the uh, eventual growth of the kingdom of heaven from a mere, uh, what would be just a simple start. Irrelevant to the world's perspective, and yet grow into something bigger than it is. The hidden treasure. It talks about the great worth of the kingdom of heaven. The pearl of great price. It speaks of the pricelessness of heaven. When it talks about the dragnet, it talks about the wicked and the good shall be separated, one to reward and other to judgment. Again, from a positive perspective. Remember, Matthew's writing to Jewish people. Jewish people have lost their sovereignty within their own country. Justice is no longer found for them. They are simply persecuted for the fact that they are Jewish. So them knowing that a date and time is going to come in the future when all things are set right would be a very positive aspect and consideration for those going through what they were going through at the moment. So I believe that Jesus is using leaven in a very simple and ordinary way. It doesn't carry with it the negative connotations that it does in other passages at this point. And here, context is key to understanding what Jesus meant by this. Leaven was used all the time. We still use that process of yeast building in our baking today. And I think Jesus was simply saying that the work and the expansion of the kingdom of heaven was going to be a work starts and then some is taken from that work and placed in other areas and a new work begins. And that's completely consistent with the book of Acts. Showing and demonstrating. When Jesus talked about the three, uh, you know, um, how he says it here, uh, the three measures of meal, he's talking about that from one little loaf, that leaven can be used to feed 100 to 150 people in and through what it is able to create. So I think that we take this in the wrong direction if we assign negative connotations to it and the commentators who do so will say he's going he's talking about the corruption of the kingdom of heaven later on in the church he's talking about uh the sin that will be introduced and so forth but that doesn't fit the context of what matthew is writing at the time and who jesus is speaking to at the time now did that happen yes but we can't simply identify the interpretation of this particular passage simply on the pragmatic understanding of the future that came after it. What did Jesus say here? I think it's in a very simple, simple form. That the kingdom of God was going to start. It was going to then go out into various places in very simple form and have a drastic effect on the areas in which it arrives. As one historical commentator writes, he says, he says, but Jesus seems here to reverse the negative connotations symbolized here in the word leaven to the fact that it is simply a symbol symbolizes the hidden permeation of the kingdom of heaven in this world. The mustard seed emphasizes growth, 
While the yeast suggests a permeation and transformation in spite of its small, inconspicuous beginning, the kingdom of heaven will permeate the world around us. And in a global sense, that's exactly what has occurred. When you come to the book of Acts and you see the development of the kingdom of heaven, of course, in the church, in the, in, in, in the form of the church, because that's where it was going. Jesus was doing something after Pentecost. He was creating something brand new that the world had never seen before. The Jewish people at that time needed to know and understand that he wasn't going to physically reign in Jerusalem at that time. That he was going to be crucified. Then on the third day, rise again. And then shortly after that, ascend back to the right hand of the Father. Establishing his physical kingdom at his second coming. So it's completely appropriate to understand the context of chapter 13 in him simply describing and illustrating for those that were listening and the disciples specifically how the kingdom of God was going to advance. They thought it was going to be done militarily like it was in the Old Testament history. But Jesus made it abundantly clear in Acts chapter 1 that what was going to happen the physical expanse of the kingdom of heaven was not going to be drived by military force, but by the moving of the Holy Spirit. And that's what, he is, that's what he's getting to here. And that's what we are still part of today. Now, it's interesting to me that when you look at the, the book of Acts, when the church was first established, in Acts chapter 2, there's that interesting verse that's found that they had favor amongst all the sight of the people. Uh, 42, 43, I think it is. Uh, Verse 42 or 43 of Acts 2. But it was short-lived. And what seemed to splinter, or I should say spark, the growth of the church was not favoritism and prosperity, but that of persecution. When persecution began to come against the church, those early Christians in Jerusalem started going into all of the known world. It drove them out of their comfort zone, just as Jesus desired. Some scholars, uh, they believe that it may have just remained there in Jerusalem, thinking that from Jerusalem they could establish the kingdom of God that way. Jesus then returns. It's interesting. It's an interesting thought when you read in the epistles the number of times it is talked about or alluded to that they expected Jesus to return in their time. And you can really see how those thoughts would shape their thinking and, and also uh, lead them to ask the questions and write the, what they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting when you think about it. That being said, though, we see clearly that Jesus is God's intention for the church was to go into all the world. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. It wasn't to remain in Israel. And of course, he predicted the, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the destruction of the temple and the complete disbursement of the Jewish people throughout the world. But under that umbrella of persecution, the gospel went in and out through the entire world. It's extraordinary. When you look at it, you see in Acts chapter 2, they went from that position of favor, but by the time you get to Acts chapter 8, we already see that Saul, we know him as Paul, 
severely persecuting the church and driving it out from Israel into the known world and then chasing them into the known world. And of course, that's how he is uh, found to be on the road to Damascus and stopped by the Lord and comes to the saving faith himself. In Acts chapter 11, it's already demonstrated that the church had been scattered due to the persecution that arose. But then you get to Acts chapter 17, verse 6. And you find what started out with these 12 individuals, then 120 at the time of Pentecost, by Acts 17 in Ephesus, Luke writes to us, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren and the ruler, to the rulers of the city, crying out, notice what he says here, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. The gospel of Jesus Christ was now permeating the aspect of the known, every aspect of the known world. We also see that in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3-6. through 6. When Paul writes, we give thanks to God and our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in, all the, in the word, excuse me, of truth, of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Very interesting. When they used to make bread, they would start with a loaf that has been leavened. They would take some of that loaf save the leaven, of course, and they would use that leaven to rise other pieces of dough and to make more bread. And I think that's the simple illustration that Jesus is providing for us here. I don't think it is necessary to carry it into a negative connotation, and I also don't believe that the context allows for that. Now, what does that mean for you and I today? Now that you probably know more about leaven than you ever hoped and desired to know, and we had a little history lesson as we've walked through some of the portions of Acts, what does it mean for you and I today? If Jesus' intent, which I believe it was, was to demonstrate the permeation, I'm sorry, I said that wrong word, the permeation of Christianity throughout the world, we see in our post-Christian culture. Now, let me explain that. America has entered in to its post-Christian season after Christianity. When we say it like that, we are saying that Christendom is no longer the dominant worldview within our culture any longer. Even though Christodom led to many people with a, a false assurance of salvation, there still was enough of the knowledge of God in them to restrict their, uh, their activities, to set a standard of morality that was still aligned with Judeo-Christian values, and as a result, we still had a moral standard that was based on the Bible. And even though I'm absolutely agreeing that not everyone who held that moral standard was necessarily saved and going to heaven, 
but they still had that compass guiding them. But after you see the progression of Europe, especially if you read of the pastors who uh, spoke in the 1950s, World War II devastated Europe. I don't have to make that argument for you. But one of the things that happened in England was it really challenged their personal understanding of God. I believe that it was the devastation of World War II that led the philosophy of existentialism to the surface. Uh, I, I believe that people saw the atrocities of World War II, questioned the goodness of God, certainly questioned the goodness of man, because what they saw could not be placed under a context of either. But as a result, it, that's when you started seeing the mass exodus in Great Britain from Christianity. They were having conversations about the need for revival in their country. Scholars were seeing the decline of individuals attending seminary, interested to not only become part of the Church of England, but just a pastor in general. They saw the populace began to uh, you know, decline in the sense of their moral standards concerning the Bible and Judeo-Christianity. The Bible was questioned as the, uh, the authority that it once questioned uh, for its authority in the land and saying, why should we hold to it any longer if we don't believe the God who supposedly wrote it? And you see where I'm going with this. And then by the 1970s in Europe, you saw this real decline, this real wane that today Christianity is... A mere shadow of what it once was in England. Oh, there are still Christians there. Oh, there are still the beautiful churches. There are still the memories of various Christians who impacted that society greatly. But the majority of people no longer have a heart for God. The majority of Great Britain today identifies themselves as atheists, no longer even agnostic. And even though Christianity was so prevalent and powerful in England. England used to be the capital or the the nation sending out missionaries into all of the world. And now, of course, missionaries are being sent to England. The reason I bring that up is because the United States is right behind them. We see that happening all around us. Politicians are encouraging us no longer to consider our standard of morality in adjacence with Judeo-Christian values. They've said it openly. And though we have beautiful churches and we have a beautiful Christian tradition here in the United States of America where God is found in the Pledge of Allegiance and many of the songs that we sing about America, including God Bless America, yet it's a mere remnant of what it once was. And we see that happening before us. We are entering into a a post-Christian culture where Christianity is not a dominant idea within the worldview of the individual. And now we are entering into a period of time that the Bible best describes of what everyone's, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Now, that could be very troubling because most of us here grew up in a society that was conscientious of God's Word, of the Bible. There was respect for Jesus Christ. 
and the wisdom that he brought and the moral standards in which he gave. And we're seeing that all of that dissipate before us today. The problem is that once you abandon such a prominent, dominant idea in any society, it creates a vacuum. And that vacuum has to be filled with something. Because as I've stated before, the human acts upon uh, or, or conducts themselves in this world just like a computer does. It has two major components. It has the physical body, which would represent the computer hardware, and then it has the software, the mind, the soul, the thinking. Both are needed to exist and to live and to run. And so if you change operating systems from Judeo-Christianity to something else, whatever that else is, is still necessary because it's needed for the body, the person, to function. And that's why we see such a lack of cohesiveness amongst our nation today. That's why our nation seems so fragmented today. Because everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. You know, we used to talk about people's opinion and respect people's opinion, and we should. But people's opinion now have be- has become their guiding light in all things. We have been told and instructed time and time again that absolutes no longer exist. Absolutely no longer exist. And we are truly now reaping what we have sown. I don't think I have to make much of an argument to show you the confusion that is being reaped within the world today. When I talk to people today, one of the very first things they say to me is, I don't know what to believe anymore. We have been let down by politicians. We've certainly been let down by our media. Institutions that were supposed to be truthful in their operations. The media was supposed to inform the populace and not work for the politicians. Again, I know I don't have to make these arguments before you this morning. It's just an evident fact. So what do we do in this time? Because we still see the fingerprints of the Christian era that we have come out of, right? We still see the churches. We still see the hospitals that were established through Christianity. We still see the orphanages that were established through Christianity. We still see the schools that were established through Christianity. And yet we are now educating individuals. They're entering into a world with such an absolute different worldview than they have. And all we're getting is this, constantly. But it is true of what Jesus said. 2,000 years ago, this young man who lived to 33 years of age, who raised up 12 disciples, through those 12 individuals, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the authority of the Word of God, Christianity has permeated our entire world, hasn't it? It's incredible to think of. It's incredible to see. And not always in the best ways. Let's be honest. We have a lot of explaining to do about the Christian history. The Inquisition and the Crusades and so forth. But the idea of Christianity spread through the entire world just as Jesus said it would here in this parable. Even when I watch things from English, I 
like British television, specifically British mysteries. I'm sorry, they do a mystery right. And yet, in the show that has just been currently uh, created and produced, they still will time after time quote a Bible verse or elude a Christian principle. Because it's in their thinking, it's in their DNA. Though they have no heart or respect for God, the permeation of that thinking in their conscience has already been established. But today what we see is Romans chapter 1 not only happening on an individual basis, where individuals are trying to suppress all knowledge of God by their sin, but we see nations now doing that trying to suppress the understanding and the ideas that Christianity has brought into the nations through the founding of the nations, especially America. Our legal system is based on Judeo-Christian values. And yet we're abandoning all of those things. And in the wake, we are adopting all kinds of ideas from our interaction with one another between races here in the nation instead of the J.O. Christian principle of everyone is equal before God, right? We've adopted now critical race theory that is a poor replacement by far. Even when it comes to our economics, we have moved away from simple capitalistic ideas that were originated back in Christian, uh, Judaism now we've replaced it with called uh, modern monetary theory. And if I could sum up that theory for you today, it would be this. It's modern, and it makes no sense at all theory. It, it's, it's, it's insane. If you have an economic background, I strongly would encourage you to look at it. But this explains why our government is printing money and putting zeros at the end of computers to allow us to keep running in deficits each and every year. One economist this week now stated that for every one tax dollar that is generated uh, by the uh, federal government for the purposes of supporting this nation financially, they have to borrow three more. That's terrifying. And in any common sense economic classroom, that would never fly. But now we've assigned a new theory to it allowing for such deficits to be run. You see, when you move into a post-Christian era, after the dominance of Christianity wanes within a society, it creates a vacuum, and that vacuum has to be filled with secular thinking. Why in the world are we thinking about trying to revive socialistic principles that never worked anywhere else? Because we have the arrogance to believe that we in America can do it better. Also, we have the problem of thinking that it's the only game in town. Paul told us very clearly when he saw Christianity run into the face of the Gentile world in its you know, infancy, Paul, in, because he was an intellect, because he was very well educated, and of course, endued with the power of the Holy Spirit specifically. He warned Christians because he saw what was happening. They had worldview conflicts immediately when the Jewish populace went into the Gentile world, mainly because the Jewish people believed in one true God. 
the pagan world believed that there was a plethora of gods and they should all be worshipped in respect. But he wrote this to the church. He says, beware. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10, through 8 through 10. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of man, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principalities and powers. Paul knew that the world did not have the answers needed to satisfy the human soul and the human mind. Paul saw it firsthand. Read Acts chapter 17 when he went into Athens. And it's interesting backstory there historically. Athens was in great flux by that time. You know Athens. That's where Plato and Socrates and Aristotle all arose from. That was their epicenter of Greek philosophy. But if you know why Socrates was murdered, executed, you'll understand the background. It's because his philosophies were deemed as heresy against the Greek gods. And of course, that's why he was forced to drink the hemlock that he drank. But by the time Paul rolls into Athens, you know, uh, uh, we're talking, what, 500-something B.C., uh, Plato and uh, Socrates. And so now, we're here we are about 65 A.D. with Paul going into Athens. Oh, they still had the remnant of their Greek gods, which is interesting because if you study Greek mythology, you realize that the only way the Greek gods could continue to exist is if the people believed in them. I think people believe today that if I just simply don't believe in God, He's going to go away, poof, disappear. Oh, are they going to be in for a shock, right? When every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. But when Paul ran into Ephesus, I'm sorry, Athens, he saw the incredible number of statues they had to the various gods that they worshipped. But that's not what the philosophers were interested in. They weren't interested in those gods. They didn't consider the, the statue to the unknown god because, of course, they had it there so they wouldn't offend anyone that they may have left out. Paul used that as a springboard into the gospel. But there's one sentence that Luke adds for us there that's very interesting to me. The reason that they were initially willing to accommodate Paul, though they thought he was a babbler, meaning silly, crazy, they continued listening to him because all they did all day was wait to hear something new, it says. Because what was happening is that their religion was dissipating and secular thinking was on the rise, so they were waiting for the further development of secular thinking to establish their society because plato initially said that the whole reason for his philosophical statements was for uh, eurythia that's the greek word it means fulfillment satisfaction and just for argument's sake this is why jesus is called the logos he was called the, Lo- the logos because it flew into the face of the greek philosophers stating that the only true wisdom is God himself and personed in, the, in Jesus Christ. It's fascinating stuff. Catch my show on Channel 11, Viewership 3. No. But this is the background to Christianity. This is where we are at today. 
We are seeing the wane of Christianity. And in fact, you can find articles right now that tell us that evangelicalism in America is dead due to our allegiance to Donald Trump. I think God is bigger than Donald Trump, don't you? And yes, the American form of evangelical Christianity may be on the decline and may be appearing dead, but I'm going to tell you right now that the church of Jesus Christ is doing just fine. Because the more China tries to suppress Christianity in China, guess what happens? It explodes. And that's what's happening right now. The government cannot contain the gospel in China. They try to stamp out one home church and five more start. They try to arrest people in an underground church and three more start. They, can't, they cannot suppress it. And they're never going to suppress it because the gates of hell shall not prevail against this church. Guys, I don't care what the world puts forward. There is no greater wisdom or philosophical thinking than what is found in the Word of God. So what do you do today to assure yourself, to steady yourself in such an insecure word? Dive into the Bible like never before. It's an anchor for us. It keeps us solidified. It keeps us solid. As Jesus said, every other thinking is like standing upon sand and when the trials of life come and the storms of life come, it'll be, you'll be, the sand will be swept out from underneath you and great will be the fall. But anyone who chooses to hear and to do the Word of God stands on the rock. And that's what we need to do today. We need to stand on the rock.